All right. Getting used to having more people on Zoom than in the classroom, so I guess that works here as well in that kind of context. We are about to enter into chapter 12. There are two chapters in Romans that are often quoted. Uh, Christians know them very well. Chapter 8, chapter 12, and maybe chapter 15. Uh, but they're usually quoted out of the context of, of uh, the book of Romans itself. So I want to remind you a little bit. The first 11 chapters that we've covered is Paul's theological explanation of the plan of God and the gospel. He's concluded that God has shut all humanity, both Israel and the nations, under disobedience so that he can show mercy to both. All are sinners, with or without the law. The Torah, which is good and holy, can't save us. In fact, it actually causes us to sin more because of the law of sin and death that's in our flesh. But what the law could not do, God did in sending his son to die as an offering for sin and to uh, condemn the, the flesh and the sin in the flesh so that we could be free from the law of sin and death. Not free from the Torah, free from the law of sin and death. And that ultimately, our bodies of this death would be transformed. So we've been crucified and buried with Him in baptism. And we will certainly be raised like Him in glory at the adoption of mature sons at the resurrection. So Paul claims there's a righteousness of faith expressed in the Torah and the prophets. That faith of Abraham that trusts God's word regarding resurrection and the promised one called the Messiah. Paul says this gospel is to the Jews first who have an advantage uh, with their exposure to the Torah and also to the Gentiles. It's believed in the heart, confessed with the mouth, based on grace through faith, and it doesn't nullify the Torah, it actually establishes it. But this process of faith involves testing and suffering that brings about endurance and character which makes the hope more certain. And then we saw in the last three chapters that the difficulty for Paul was that many in Israel at his time had not accepted the gospel and were trying to earn salvation by works. I believe that's happening both in Judaism and in Christianity now. But God has not rejected Israel. He's always remained, uh, maintained a remnant by grace and Paul sees himself and others, Jews, as fully embracing the gospel. So the answer is no, God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. But they have been in part hardened for our sake as Gentiles. We're not to boast against the natural branches. God's actually going to use us to make them jealous and ultimately to bring about the salvation of all Israel, as Paul talks about. Now... That background can make us forget something that Paul talks about in chapter 6 that is critical to understanding chapter 12. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We'll start with it. Uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 5. <clears throat> 5 to 14. Paul says... Um, if we have become united with him, do we have uh, this going on? 
just my lungs. <laughs> okay. Uh, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its lust. Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Now that context, Paul says, We've been crucified with Christ and we're going to be resurrected with Him. Our body will ultimately be changed. So Paul says we're to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God. That's what I've called the, the title of the sermon. Uh, we are to stop presenting, notice his words, presenting our bodies for the purposes of sin but to present our bodies for the purposes of the glorification of God and the righteousness of God. It is that context that Paul is talking about when he begins Romans chapter 12. So I now want you to turn with me to Romans 12 so that we can see this in context. It's been very hard in this whole series for me not to jump to all kinds of books. I've jumped to a few. Uh, I'm going to do a little more of that today because this is a major theme of Paul's that I don't hear anymore. I hear Paul talking about grace. I hear Paul talking about the resurrection. I hear Paul talking about being with Christ. I don't hear Paul talking about how do we live. Because you and I live between the ascension and the return. And Paul is telling us that the way we live during that time is dead to sin and alive to God. That's how we do it. Now, that's a nice, that could be a bumper sticker, that could be a verse on a wall. What does that mean in practical terms? That's what chapter 12, 13, and 14 are about. So, we begin with chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul's just given his doxology of the praise to God for this brilliant plan whereby God has put all under sin so that he may give mercy to those whom he chooses to give mercy to. So he says, therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies, the grace of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, he means demonstrate, what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So Paul begins the chapter by saying, this is how we live between the ascension and the return of the Lord. 
We are to present our bodies. He's using sacrificial language. A presentation. We talk about our presentation of selves. We are giving ourselves to God. He says that we are giving notice. Your bodies. As a living sacrifice. Not yourself. Your body. Holy and acceptable to God. This is appropriate worship of God for what He's done in saving us. So, what we do is we stop presenting our bodies to unrighteousness. What does He mean? Don't live the way the world lives. Now, for you and I, that's a struggle particularly for my generation, because when I was growing up, even though I was not in a religious home, many of the things that Christians believed were right and wrong were what everybody said was right or wrong. And I got told that message, even though I didn't get the gospel. I, I knew that lying was wrong. I knew that murder was wrong. I knew that sexual sins were sexual sins. I knew that, not because I was a believer, but because the culture had been so permeated by the Judeo-Christian values that it, it spilled over on everyone. We don't live in that America anymore. So Paul says that we are to not be conformed to these Babel cultures. The cultures that developed from Babel. That requires that we not pattern our lives according to this culture, but that we are transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of our mind. This is part of the inner man. The inner man has to be changed in order for the outer man to function appropriately. Because out of the heart, out of the mind, out of the inner person, comes the wretchedness that Paul, that Jesus talks about that is, uh, defiles us. And so what Paul says is, we're born again by the Spirit. Your spirit now has to get a hold of your mind so that your mind isn't thinking like the world, it's thinking biblical thoughts. We have to think and be motivated biblically in order that we can speak and act biblically. The Bible sees behavior as the thoughts and intents of the heart and the words and deeds of the body. So when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's going to tell us how we do that. We have to have our mind changed. And to do that, we're going to look at other aspects of Paul's writing about this in his other letters. I'm not going to go to all of them, though he does it in just about all of them. I'm going to go to two that are primary. One is Ephesians, and the other is Colossians. So I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says... So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, means behave, no longer as the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind. They're conformed to the world. That's Paul. what Paul's talking about. They think like Americans. They act like Americans. 
They think like the culture. They act like the culture. And it's darkness and it's futile and it's going nowhere. We're not of this world, right? They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. They don't know the Lord and the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Boy, if that's not American culture. American culture now is about how can I be uh, do less and get more? How can I be entertained and I'm getting bored? What's new? Right? I mean, that's just where, where we are. Paul says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, if you have been taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, that is how you were before you were a believer, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Sin deceives us into thinking that we can live in this world and be of this world. He says, and put on the new man, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That is the word of God. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. He means the word of God. Each one of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In other words, Paul says that we are coming to Jesus just as I am. But as I've come to know him, I begin to live differently. My mind begins to change and my spirituality begins to develop and that we're born again in the spirit and have the indwelling of God's spirit to combat the flesh. We drop the false and begin to live the truth because we are members of one another. We are a community. Paul's going to get to that in Romans. Now, to get you to see this context, that Paul's making every one of the churches understand this, I want you to turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Ten verses there, I'm just going to read them. I'll comment a little bit. But you'll see, he's saying the same thing. Different words, but the same idea. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of earth. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, right? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, when he returns, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Serving another God, the God of this world. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is going to come on the sons of disobedience. And we're not sons of disobedience. We're supposed to be children of obedience. In them you once walked. You used to be that way. When you were living in them. But now, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech with your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed, 
being renewed, not is renewed, being renewed, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Are you following this pattern? There's something different about us once we come to the Lord. So now let's go back to Romans 12 and pick it up in verse 3. So Paul starts right up, right out of the gate with attitude. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we are many are one members in Christ and individual members of one another. And we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In prophecy, according to the portion of our faith, in service, in our serving, in teaching, in his teaching, in exhortation, in the exhortation, the one who gives with liberality, the one who leads with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, really important. Paul is saying to us that we are in community. Remember in Colossians, we're members one of another. We're in community. You will not grow up alone. You only grow up in a household and in a congregation. You, it takes a community, not a village, a community. And the idea here is that we are to conform to the body of believers. He warns us against thinking too highly of ourselves. It's a tendency for us to not care about what your gift is and what your ministry might be and what you might be able to do if I don't think I need you. Now, we could really go to Corinthians where Paul says, the foot cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? I just don't have time for that. But you can hear Paul echoing in all of these letters that body life, communal life is critical. But he says we are to engage in ministry. We're to engage in our ability at the level of our faith. In other words, at the level of our maturity. So, you don't take a three-year-old and give him the lawnmower and tell him to mow the lawn. He's not mature enough for that, right? The teenager can do the lawn, right? So the idea is, within the body, as we present ourselves to the Lord, as we minister to one another, we do it at the level of our spiritual maturity. Let me tell you what your goal is. Your goal is where the church is more dependent on you than you are on the church. That's maturity. When you're in the house, when you're depending on your parents more than they're depending on you, you're immature. When you reach the point where you're autonomous, and then even where you can help your parents, you've moved into the level of maturity. So, we're all in need of each other all the time, but you know what I'm talking about. There's a level at which you're functioning more, you dress yourself, you feed yourself, you take care of yourself. That's signs of maturity. Our gifting is supposed to be exercised at the level of our faith maturity. And Paul talks about that. The body helps you identify your gifts. You often think you have a gift, and we all know you don't, right? Uh, and Paul says, therefore, I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
Have sound judgment. Be, be realistic about what you can and can't do. This is where the uh, people pleasers and the perfectionists get in trouble, right? Um, we mature together. No one matures in isolation. We mature in congregation and community. So, back to Ephesians just briefly. Back to 4. Going to pick it up at verse 11. So God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. The pastors and prophets equip the holy ones, that's you guys, for the work of ministry. That's what you do. What is the ministry? It's the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's where we're headed. We won't get there until after the resurrection, but we're headed that direction. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by the trickery of men and craftiness and scheming, deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, see, he, he's always got that thing. We speak the word to each other, speaking to one another, uh, the words of God singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We grow up in all aspects of Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every part supplies. That's why we need everybody. That's why we need to be in each other's lives. Because as we're in each other's lives, we begin to help each other. Not just sitting here facing each other, but in each other's lives. According to the proper working of each individual part, causes the body to build itself up in love. Okay? This is why God gave us households. This is why God gave us congregations. For we learn relational growth together. Now, some of us grew up in homes where we didn't learn that. Some of us are in homes where that's not easy to practice. I get that, but we have to keep the goal in mind of what we're trying to do. So now we're back to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Paul's going to give us a series of instructions here. I'm going to try to talk about them uh, briefly. Uh, but th this is the meat and potatoes of what he's talking about. This is the how to live stuff. So, we begin with verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hmm. What does Paul mean by hypocrisy? He means that we only love when we're being watched. We're only doing when the body is watching. Jesus said, don't do your alms. Don't give. Don't do these things to be seen of men. That's what the hypocrites do. The hypocrites only do it to be seen of people so they get the praise. But you do it in secret because your Father sees in secret. So this is not about public uh, figuring out how we can make everybody think the Disciple Center is great. We want to be believers who people think, I don't know who those, where those people go to church, but they've got a great Lord, right? That's, that's the idea. So, he says, our behavior in private and public must be consistent. Jesus condemned the acting spiritual to be seen of men. 
Because our Father sees in secret. And then he says, we're to reject evil and cling to good. That's not easy. Particularly in our, in our culture. So, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. I, I find this fascinating. He's just talked about agape love. And now he's talking about affectionate love. That we are to be affectionate towards each other. Supposed to really have emotions that are positive towards each other. That we really care about each other. That we uh, understand each other. We're not saying, well that one's beneath me. We really have a sense of care one for another. And so he says... We're devoted to our fellow believers. And he said, give preference to one another. That means we're more concerned about the other than we are about ourselves. Again, not easy. That requires self-sacrifice. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence... Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Sometimes we coast. Sometimes we look for the minimum we can do. How much can I do to get by? I've, I'm, after all, I've got a busy life, right? That's not good. We're supposed to be diligent about teaching our children. We're supposed to be diligent about our care for one another. We're supposed to be doing this as we're serving the Lord. That's not leftovers, right? That's primary commitment that we're doing. Verse 12, he says, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Paul's leading back to that section where he says that our faith is going to be tested and we should rejoice in that hope, but that process involves tribulation and proven character and hope ultimately that happens. He adds something here, and I think this is really critical. He says that in that context, we are to be devoted to prayer. I think prayer is one of the hardest spiritual disciplines that we have. Reading the Bible you can do and not do it, right? But, but prayer is difficult. Prayer is hard to do. Particularly when you say, I'm going to try to pray for an hour. Hour? It's hard. Three minutes. I've said everything I know, right? Let me tell you what I think Paul's talking about here. You guys all know that uh, I had a friend, Tyrone, uh, growing up that I lived with his family for a while. Tyrone and I didn't see each other for a very long time. And a few years ago, for some reason, uh, we started uh, connecting pretty regular again. Uh, and my sense of our relationship is closer than it was during those dry years. That's what prayer is. 
Prayer is practicing the presence of God. Otherwise, you're talking to the air. There really is something about being constant in prayer. I don't mean you're constantly on your knees with your hands folded and you're saying the prayers. I'm saying, and you guys have seen, you guys know Fiddler on the Roof. I'm talking about that kind of Tevia thing. That whenever something happens, I, I love it when his horse is lame and he goes, Dear Lord, was that necessary? <laughs> now, he's attributing to God the injury to the horse. I don't think that's true. But the idea is, he's talking to God about everything. Isn't that what Paul says? Philippians. Don't be anxious about anything. I get anxious about almost everything. right? And he says, stop it. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's when the peace of God holds us. Practicing the presence of God means, and you know the song, you never walk alone, right? That's, that's really what that's about. It's about being in relationship with God, particularly during difficulties, particularly during distress, particularly during difficult times. Uh, that's not when we want to say, don't worry, God, I can handle this. No, you can't. Right? So, he says that we are to uh, be in prayer in that context. Then he says in verses 13, uh, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. We're supposed to help each other out. We're supposed to provide for each other. Now, I'm, I don't think that just means when someone has a baby, we do a meal train. That's great. When somebody has a death, we make sure that they're covered. Those are great. Almost every human being does things then. There are a lot of little, small things that just get in the way. And I love it when I hear in the testimonies or I hear from other people the little things that you do for each other being in each other's lives. Just going over and fixing something, going over and picking something up. Can't Somebody can't go to the store, you pick something up and you take it to them. I think that is part of what this is about. And being hospitable in that sense is a generalized uh, attitude that we're supposed to have with one another. Verse 15 is one of my favorite verses. No, it isn't. It's, yeah, 15 is. I was, I was looking at 14. 14. 14 is not my favorite verse. Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That one's tough. I'm going to save that one for what he's about to talk about. So I'm going to bypass that one. And go to 15 because I like 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I learned this a long time ago. And it was transforming to me. I had this sense. You know, you get in ministry and you got to help people. I had this sense that my job was to bring the mourner to the point of rejoicing. And bring the rejoicer by humbling them down to the point of lamentation. Right? And that's not it at all. I'll tell you what Paul's saying. He's saying, when somebody's rejoicing, rejoice with them. 
when somebody's lamenting, somebody's mourning, do it with them. You're part of the body. If one member suffers, we all suffer. What does that mean? It means, basically, to sit down next to them. That's what comfort is. Comfort can comfort in rejoicing, and it can comfort in lamentation. Because what comfort means is to come alongside and reinforce. As they put these bags, they made the bags thinner and thinner and thinner. Uh, I began to notice that the people that were bagging groceries would put a bag inside a bag. That second bag was a comfort bag. It reinforced the first one so it wouldn't rip. Okay? So we're going to engage in each other's rejoicing and we're going to uh, mourn with those who mourn. That's hard for us to learn because we're always worried that we're going to affect the other person's emotion. If you come alongside their emotion, you don't affect their emotion negatively. You reinforce it. And if they are working through rejoicing, they'll be able to express it. And if they're working through mourning, they'll be able to let it go through. Many people are carrying terrible grief and mourning uh, because they don't know how to mourn. And we need to mourn with them. It's not the same with happiness and rejoicing. I, I don't think we stuff rejoicing. I don't think anybody ever goes down the street and all of a sudden somebody does something to rejoice them and they go, rejoice, rejoice! Oh, and they're finally getting that out, right? We, if we are rejoicing, we usually do that pretty quickly. But it's not the same with mourning. Mourning, we, try, we don't like that feeling. We try to hold it back, hold it back. Sometimes what you do when you mourn with someone is you, you lance that wound a little bit and let them let it out. And I really think that that is more healing than any words of encouragement can be. They can't hear the encouragement until the grief waves have passed. And then they can receive that. So I like that verse. 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Now, that doesn't mean everybody think like me. <laughs> We're trying to have the mind of Christ. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. The Bible seems to have an attitude that human beings do have self-esteem, and it's a problem. We have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves. We tend to compare ourselves with people who are beneath us, and criticize people who we think might be above us. Right? We have a tendency to do that. And what Paul says is we need to be humble in mind and we need to associate with the, with the lowly. Jesus talks about this in a number of places. But it, I'm always struck by when he says don't sit at the front of the table because someone might come along and they say, hey, would you move and let this person in? And then everybody watches you go down, right? Sit at the back of the table. Now, I think you can manipulate that. I'm not talking about that. I really think that at some point, there is a danger in thinking uh, that our resume 
is accurate. If I gave you my resume and my curriculum vita, it only has the things I want you to see. It doesn't have the stuff that I'm desperate to hide because I'm ashamed of that. Some people's shame shows. That doesn't mean we don't have shame. And so we need to associate with the lowly. Really like... I, I remember years ago I would fly back often from the east from a convention or something into Orange County, into John Wayne Airport on Continental Airlines. And the, uh, I would always take the last flight before they would close the, the airport because the CEO of Continental was on it. So I knew that plane was going to land in John Wayne. They weren't going to reroute that plane, right? So I'd get on that last flight. And I'd watch this guy. He'd come in, he'd greet every one of the employees in there. He would then go through the the cabin and he would help serve and he would ask people things. He didn't do it all the time, but he did it often enough that I noticed a pattern. I didn't know who that who's this guy? He's not in uniform, right? Who is this guy? He's the CEO. Wow. He didn't go in. I'm the CEO. Right? He came to serve. And I thought back of Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. That's, that's the attitude. That's the humility that we should have. Now I've got to get to verse 13. I mean, verse 14. Uh, Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Goes with verse 17. So let me read that. I'm going to read I'm going to read 14 and I'm going to go to 17. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Now Paul starts this list in Romans in the context of the community. But as he goes on, he begins to move out into broader society and and context. It's not a hard boundary, but it's a fluid one as we move within the body and into the culture that we find ourselves in. We're going to see next time that he addresses authorities and then moves back within the community. So this is a back and forth kind of thing. We come into community, we reinforce in community, we go out into the world. It's more of a continuum than a separate domains because we're in the world but not of it. So Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And I want to say, anyone? Anyone? You've got to be kidding me. He says to anyone. 
He's going to tell us why. And then he says, we're to respect, that is consider, what is right, generally acceptable, in the sight of all men. I think what he's saying there is that we should kind of get along. We shouldn't be sticking out obnoxious people in the context of the culture. Go with the flow of the traffic. Right? Uh, that's not easy. Particularly when you're behind somebody who's slow. Then he says, wherever you can, to the extent that it's in your ability, you're to be at and make peace with all people. I tell you, the American in me just rises up at this stuff. It just does. That culture wants me to conform to, what about my rights and what about right and wrong, right? And he's saying, kind of go with the flow and be at peace with all people. I think that Paul is thinking about Jesus when he sent out his disciples. And he said to them, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Think through, consider what move you're making. Don't become a zealot. Humility of mind, not hypocritical, genuinely affection towards your fellow believers. And now in the world, we are not to stick up like a problem. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And you've heard me say, I think in America, we, the church tends to be dumb as an ox and like a bull in a china shop. That's kind of the direction we've gone. This really goes against American spirit. When Paul, But remember that Paul said we're not to be conformed to our culture. So Paul draws on Proverbs and the Torah when he says we're not to take our own revenge. We're to leave that to God. Because God will judge righteously. Instead, Paul says what Jesus said. Feed your, your hungry enemy and give him a drink if he's thirsty. Why? Because you don't overcome evil with evil. The old tit for tat thing. That's, that doesn't, you know what that does? That escalates it. And we're seeing that in our, in our politics. We're seeing that in all kinds of areas where when somebody does something, okay, now turnabout's fair play. Right. Paul says, if we overcome evil by doing good, one of two things is going to happen. Our love might actually change our enemy. It might change them for their good. There are many testimonies of people who say, I was really mocking this Christian and mocking this Christian and mocking this Christian and they kept loving me and kept loving me and I finally couldn't take it anymore. So some will actually be won by overcoming evil with good. 
But even if not, Proverbs says, and Paul quotes it here, you are heaping coals of fire on their head. You are making their judgment certain and clear. Your judgment will never be certain and clear. So if they need to be judged, who better than God to do the judging? You guys know I love the verse, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And my prayer is always, let me be thy instrument. Right? But that's not what says here. I'm to be an instrument. My, I'm to present my body as an instrument of righteousness to God. Not unrighteousness and evil in the way that the culture says. The problem with that is that this is not a one-time gig. This is an everyday problem. Every day we have to get up. Every day we have to take off the old man because he gets up with you. And then you got to put on the new man and go from there. It would be wonderful if Paul said, you, you take off part of the old man and the next day, the next part, and the next day. The reality is we are constantly going to fight ourselves until the resurrection. We're going to battle that. I always thought as I got older and older, this would get easier and easier. It's actually in some ways more difficult because I see the mirror more clear than I used to see it. And so I see things that I used to ignore and now I can't ignore those. Those are not Christ-like in my life. I have to change them. It's a daily process. But I hope you get that Paul's not just saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, come in an invitation. He's basically saying that every day in the morning when you wake up is an invitation to be dead to sin and alive to God. Let's pray.